This week, the latest bachelorette will get closer to choosing the man of her dreams. Or at least the man of her casting dreams. These men are putting everything out there for me. When you know it's real, you know it's real. With her, everything is perfect. The more time that I spend with Michelle, the more I realize she could be the one. Have you and Miss Young kissed? Guys, I can't tell you that. <laughs> it's just organic. We're only focused on each other. I am falling in love with you. There is nothing better than hanging out with this man. For the first time since the show premiered almost 20 years ago, the man who'll get that final rose is guaranteed to be a man of color. This season's Bachelorette made history a few weeks ago when she chose four men of color as her final suitors. Michelle Young is biracial, her mother's white and her father's black, and she's the third Bachelorette of color. And there's been one black Bachelor who's also biracial, Matt James. The Bachelor franchise has made some progress when it comes to the representation of people of color on the show over the last few years. But when we peel back the curtain, look beyond the rose, if you will, how great is that progress? I think just the fact that we are only now getting to Black bachelorettes and Black bachelors, that's really significant. That's Bethany Butler. She covers television and pop culture for The Washington Post. You'll hear from her again a little later. The Bachelor franchise has had its scandals with race and sexuality. But the show is still wildly popular, and in a lot of ways, it's still the blueprint for finding a partner on television. It's one of the oldest reality dating shows of the modern reality TV era, and it set the tone for a lot of the newer reality dating shows we see today. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. In the almost 20 years since The Bachelor premiered, the reality dating genre has exploded, and producers have gotten more creative with the situations they put singles in. But the end goal is still monogamy and marriage, even as marriage rates continue to plummet. Dating reality shows have been a constant in pop culture for the last 20 years. Even if you don't watch these shows, you know the premise of at least one. Attitudes towards reality TV are ambiguous. Studies have shown people have negative feelings towards reality programming, and it's ranked among the least popular of the TV genres. But we are still very much watching reality TV. Reality TV shows are still among the most watched cable programming, suggesting that what we say we like and what we actually like are two different things. And during the pandemic, dating reality show viewership grew even more. And The Bachelor has remained one of the most popular shows in the reality dating genre. But there are other shows with a less traditional approach to courtship that have captured the attention of viewers and are consistently the most watched in the reality romance genre. Shows like Love Island where scantily clad 20-somethings try to pair off to win money, and whoever isn't chosen is booted from the island. Brand new series of Love Island. The wait is finally over. We have found the hottest and naughtiest boys and girls around, and we put them all in here, this incredible luxury villa. And in six weeks' time, your favorite couple will walk away with £50,000. Or Married at First Sight a show where literal strangers put together by TV matchmakers get married the first time they meet and try to stay married, despite the obvious issues with that arrangement. Over 20,000 people have applied to be married to a complete stranger. 
Hi, welcome to Right at First Sight. What's your name? David Norton. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. And the 90 Day Fiance franchise, a sprawling series that features spinoffs from the original concept that follows the lives of two people who live in two different countries as they go through the K-1 visa process. That's the visa that allows a non-U.S. citizen to come to the States to marry their betrothed. Jeez, I'm excited. I'm pumped. She doesn't have to leave. You're crying? Mm. <gasps> Welcome to America. <laughs> and there are a lot of other shows that follow or put singles in non-traditional dating situations to see if love can prevail. But no matter what the spin, most of these shows are still marriage propaganda. F-Boy Island came on to HBO Max last year, and I thought, hmm, what's this? Click. I'll watch that one. Joanna Weiss is editor-in-chief of Experience Magazine and a contributing editor to Politico Magazine. She wrote a great piece about marriage rates and reality TV for Politico. When you think about the premise, it sounds like a really edgy show, right? You've got these women on an island and they have to decide between the nice guys and the F-boys. And it's all about casual sex and these guys who are really into casual sex. But when you actually watch the show, it turned out to be such a traditional message. On HBO's F-boy Island, three single women are given the choice of dating self-proclaimed nice guys or F-boys. That is, guys who are self-admitted womanizers. If an F-boy makes it to the end of the show, he's given the choice to split the money with the woman he's been getting to know or to keep it for himself. And as you can guess, at least one person decided to stick to his F-boy ways. You decided to keep the $100,000 that you were rewarded for being an F-boy who was chosen. Our hope was that you would reform your F-boy ways, but you didn't. You're leaving here the same person you came in as. I don't really believe F-boys should be rewarded in the end at all, right? So with that in mind, the $100,000 you've chosen to keep for yourself, it's instead going to a charity of Sarah's choosing. You've lost the money, and an incredible woman. The show really turned out to be about reforming these F-boys, teaching them the error of their ways, grooming them, preparing them for these traditional monogamous relationships. Even if it wasn't marriage, it was like, let's get you ready for monogamy, and we know what the next step down the line is. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with valuing and desiring monogamy and marriage. But data shows that we, the people watching these shows, are getting married less and less. Millennial marriage rates in the U.S. are down 30% from 1978. Only 29% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 are married. And some are calling this a marriage crisis. But still, shows like The Bachelor rely on this idea that finding a partner and getting married is still the ultimate goal. And anyone on these shows that deviates from this idea is given the side eye or worse. There's a scene from this season of The Bachelorette where one of the contestants was outed for having a study guide about the show because he seemed more concerned about doing well on the show than actually getting with Michelle. My decision is made, okay. and so I am going to have to walk you up. That's fine. What could that guy have done? No he hasn't come back yet, has he? I did talk to Ryan a little bit when he first walked in. He seemed a little cocky in a way. Um, 
made some interesting comments, like he's been in the bachelor pool for a while. I'm thinking like, you know, what was your plan when you came, you know? Just to show up and be the bachelor or to come here and meet this girl? It's so funny, there are no illusions about reality TV anymore. Everybody knows that there are producers behind the scenes that are suggesting things for people to do and that there are editors after the fact who are creating these storylines. And yet, we still want the storylines. We still want to see these narratives play out that we expect. And we still want to see everyone kind of play act these roles and these rituals that we still think of as the structure of the dating process. And so in a way, these shows are like the fantasy that we all want. In real life, dating is messy and it is scary and it is stops and starts and the guy stops DMing you or the guy swipes left and you swipe right. There are all kinds of obstacles in the way to that traditional process. And on these shows, because they're so controlled, because they're contained, because they're edited, they can actually play out the process that we all think we expect. From the beginning of the modern reality dating era, that process has largely been based on antiquated approaches to finding a partner. Those shows are really based on these old-style courtship rituals that actually originated in the 19th century, sometimes even the 18th century, this idea that there are things that you do in the courtship process that get you to marriage, that dating is a matter of going through these rituals and checking off these boxes, but that the goal is to find a life partner and to find a love match. And even when the trappings around them are kind of crazy and pop culture and fizzy like flavor of love. I'm going to take 20 girls and I'm going to put them to the test. I'm going to see which one of these girls love flavor flavor the best. I know y'all heard of that show called The Bachelor. Or even when it's gamified and turned into kind of a game show like The Bachelor, it still adheres to these old formulas about how courtship is supposed to happen and what the end result of courtship is supposed to be. Prior to the early 2000s reality TV boom, there weren't many shows that focused on the love lives of real people. There were game shows like The Dating Game, and the UK had a show called Blind Date, but that was kind of it. At the same time, the way we look for mates started to change. Temptation Island was one of the first modern reality dating shows. It premiered in 2001, and The Bachelor premiered the next year. By then, marriage rates had already been on a steady decline, and online dating was just becoming popular. eHarmony was founded in the year 2000, and Plenty of Fish launched just three years later. Maybe that's why dating reality shows caught on so quickly. The dating process itself started to feel like a gauntlet, and we wanted to see people going through some dating obstacles of their own. Marriage has changed. The, the expectations of people coming up have changed. I mean, in my parents' generation, it was kind of expected that right after you graduated from high school or college, whether you were 18 or 21, you would pair up and you would get married. And certainly that's not the case with young people today. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that, but it has a lot to do with women being able to have careers and have financial independence and a desire from people on both sides of, of the marriage, no matter what the gender, to have financial independence, stability, the start of a career before 
before they get married. One of the things that's done is make people choosier about who they pick. It gives you time to make a selection that's really based on the criteria you want. You don't have to enter a marriage just for financial stability. You've got that hopefully going into it. So you're really choosing the right person. And that's anxiety producing. That's actually kind of harder in a way. You don't just wind up with the person you're with at the end of college. You've got to make that choice. And so I think people go into that process with a lot more expectation and anxiety. And I think that these reality shows play that out. They're all about this process of choosing and the anxiety and the pressure around choosing the right person. before dating was such an online phenomenon, you were limited to where you would find people. It would be people you would meet at work or in your social circles or in a bar. It was very localized. Now that the world is sort of at your fingertips, now that you can go online and find anybody, it's almost that paradox of choice. It makes it in some ways much harder and much more daunting. And I think there's some appeal to some limits to, to, to somebody somehow imposing some limits on your dating pool. Dating reality shows were not developed in a vacuum. They evolved right alongside other types of reality TV. Think Big Brother, Survivor, and The Apprentice. And those shows are full of archetypes and tropes that we still see in reality TV today. The wild child, the crybaby, the bro. But when we start to look at portrayals of reality stars of color, those archetypes start to drift into stereotype territory, like the angry black woman. Omarosa has a huge issue with power and us not accepting her ideas. Omarosa is sort of the original example and kind of set the standard for that really unfair portrayal of black women as angry. Now I'm done. You threatened me. It's over. I tried so hard today to stay out of your way because of the team. Not because I'm scared of you. Know that now. I know you're scared. Being a bitch is going to be your problem. Even though reality shows are supposed to be real, reality TV personalities are often produced and edited to fit into certain storylines or stereotypes. Bethany Butler wrote a piece for the Washington Post about the contributions of Black women to reality TV. And she spoke with several women who've starred on reality shows. A lot of the women I talked to, they brought up the idea of emotional permission and sort of having the emotional permission and grace from viewers of the show to express what they're feeling, whether it's anger or in some cases they were just upset and maybe crying. But oftentimes, Black women who are on these shows have found that viewers are much less likely to support them, whether they're having an argument or going through some emotional experience on the show. They're much less willing to support them and allow them to express those emotions versus the white women who are on these shows. And I think that's a really important thing to think about, just the very way that viewers are consuming and internalizing what's happening on screen, that can be racist in many ways. And in some cases, I think it has informed how reality TV shows have portrayed Black women. And that angry Black woman caricature shows up all throughout reality dating shows. The Bachelor has a ton of examples to pull from. 
Rachel Lindsay was the first Black lead in Bachelor franchise history, and she talked about being labeled an angry Black woman on her season. In my season finale of The Bachelorette, when I was sitting on stage with my runner-up, my runner-up told me that I was going to live a mediocre life if I didn't choose him. And I, my response to him was, actually, I'm living my best life. When I came back from commercial break, the host said to me, Rachel, you seem angry. And I looked and I said, well, that's a really strong word. And he said, well, you seem upset. I hadn't raised my voice. I hadn't yelled. I hadn't said any type of curse word. And then the runner-up says to me, Rachel, I feel like you attacked me. And when I confronted him on how I attacked him, he said, well, I really don't have anything to say to that. He couldn't offer any evidence of me attacking him. And from that moment on, four years ago, I have been labeled an angry black female in Bachelor Nation. The Bachelor is really important to this conversation because it's such a long running franchise. It's such a popular franchise. But even now, we're having discussions about how overwhelmingly white the franchise has been. You've had people from within the franchise, particularly Rachel Lindsay, talk about how she lobbied for producers to cast people of color, Black women in particular, talk about how the fandom itself, meaning viewers who are super invested into The Bachelor and all of its universe, that she would get toxic, nasty, racist emails from them. We're going to stick with The Bachelor franchise for a moment because there are just so many egregious examples. You might remember earlier this year, Matt James revealed on The Bachelor Post finale episode that he'd ended things with the woman he'd given his final rose to after her racist social media posts came to light. He was then inundated with emails and attacks from Bachelor fans who were upset that he, a Black man, didn't want to be with someone who'd exhibited racist behavior just a few years before. When I questioned our relationship, it was on the context of you not fully understanding my Blackness and what it means to be a Black man in America Mm -hmm. and what it would mean for our kids when I saw those things that were floating around the internet. And it broke my heart because this is the last conversation I thought we'd be having. I I didn't sign up to have this conversation. At the time, Rachel Lindsay called out the racist backlash Matt was getting. It's wild out there, y'all. It's so toxic. Like, Bachelor Nation, get... You know what? Y'all are going to be the reason this show doesn't exist anymore because you're so damn toxic. You're going to be the demise of the show and the reason it's taken down. You're nasty. You're vile. And she ended up getting into it with the show's longtime host, Chris Harrison. We're talking about the Chris Harrison debacle where Rachel Lindsay brought up concerns around a contestant and her concerns were dismissed by Chris Harrison in a TV interview. Okay, well, there goes... the picture was from 2018 at an Old South antebellum party. So I think, you know, when you... you, it's, it's when you not, hold that under the lens, it's not a good look. Well, it's not a good. Well, Rachel, is it a good look in 2018 or is it not a good look in 2021? It's because not there's a, a big good difference. look ever. Rachel Lindsay found support from some viewers, but she also got backlash and was sort of painted as, you know, being too sensitive. It was the white contestant that was at the center of that scandal who was get often given the grace oh, she just made a mistake, she was young, she was this, and Rachel sort of wasn't given that same emotional permission. 
Chris Harrison left the show and Rachel Lindsay left the Bachelor franchise, citing its lack of diversity and toxic fandom. She said that some of the viewers were more like the Bachelor clan instead of the Bachelor nation. In a lot of ways, we wouldn't even be having these conversations if not for the Black women that are on these shows. And so I think that's another really important contribution that Black women have brought to the reality TV space. And Black women on The Bachelor have been having these conversations since the very beginning of the franchise. According to Bethany, Black women looking for love on reality TV are more likely to receive hate mail and be targeted by fans. Let's go back to the first kiss in Bachelor history between Alex Michelle and Lenise Adams. We have a tradition here on the gondola. Is it for the couples to kiss underneath all of the bridges? Here we go. All right, very good. That was a real kiss. Like there was something underneath it and we proceeded to kiss underneath every bridge after that. I was not aware at the time that I was making Bachelor history, but looking back, I'm actually still excited about being attached to the first one. I got the first, second, third kiss in Bachelor history, so take that. Once the show started to air, dealing with black people who were upset that I was dating a white person and dealing with white people who were upset that I was dating a white person and not being able to go outside. And uh, it was just like way more than I bargained for. Lenise really liked her experience on The Bachelor. She was someone who had been an aspiring actress and she had been on a couple of dating shows, but there had never really been anything like The Bachelor. And so when she was chosen to go on the show, she had a good experience, but reality TV was just forming as a genre and she was not prepared for the reactions of viewers. I mean, there were millions of viewers even in that first season and she was just not prepared for their opinions about her and about the show to end up in her, in this case, it was message boards around The Bachelor. And so when she was picked off of the show and went home and found herself sort of consumed by reading those comments, and it really affected her negatively, it affected her mental health, and she sought counseling and she was able to get through that. You know, that was an experience she had in the early aughts. And unfortunately, we know that Black women have continued in many ways to have that experience where they will hear from viewers of the show and they may be scrutinized for doing something as simple as having a kiss with someone. In this case, Lenise shared an interracial kiss with The Bachelor at the time. And she said that a lot of what she read was like, who does that Black girl think she is to kiss him? When we know that, you know, The Bachelor is literally built around women buying to be in a relationship with a man, with The Bachelor, and that you know, kissing is part of it. Black contestants on The Bachelor are often held to a different standard than their white counterparts. Even when Black women have been among the contestants, they're expected to look a certain way. In some cases, they might even be expected to act a certain way. And I think Rachel Lindsay has spoken to this as well. She said she couldn't have been, you know, living at home with her parents as many of a Bachelorette contestant has. She's a lawyer. She had, she came from a pretty privileged background and sort of innately knew that that made her more appealing as a Black bachelorette. 
So the idea that Black women cannot be themselves in certain franchises, that's a really important conversation to have. And, it, and I think it highlights, you know, the disparities that still exist within the genre. Now, The Bachelor doesn't have a monopoly on negative portrayals of Black women. Love Island is notorious for casting Black women on the show, only for them to be chosen last. On the first episode of Love Island, the women line up in bathing suits and the men come out one by one and pick the woman they want. Yes, it is as cringy as it sounds. But consistently, Black women are chosen last or not at all. Michael, as the last single guy, you are coupled up with the last single girl, Yawande. Off you go. Yawande Biala was a Black Islander on season five. And she's talked about the experience of being chosen last. A lot of people don't realize about Love Island. It's like, I always say it's basically a mirror image of society we live in now, where Black women are never really seen or admired um, by Black men or any other kind of race. And um, we're always kind of pushed to the sideline. And I feel like it's obviously really, it's obviously highlighted on a show like Love Island, where like obviously, you know, there's only like, what, 12? 10 um, contestants and one of them is black and it kind of shows the society we live in at the moment. This does not suggest that black women are inherently less desirable. This goes back to casting decisions. Producers seem to be casting men who are less attracted to black women, even when those men are black themselves. And while that may seem like just a matter of preference, it's not. It's rooted in racist beauty standard and sends a message to viewers that black women are somehow less desirable. It's something Rachel Lindsay also talked about in reference to her season of The Bachelorette. I will say, it's a casting issue. There was a point where I broke down um, on camera and they used my tears for something else, but I was getting upset at the selection of men of color. And I also learned as I was going through my season that several of the Black men on my season didn't date Black women. Really? So there's that. Let's unpack this. Mm -hmm. Which well, how did you hear this? What what's like? Tell me everything. So the show found it interesting. Wow, this this guy's never dated a black woman before. And I said, "You think that's interesting? That's my life. I live that. That's why I'm in speaking out that you don't need to diversify just your cast and your leads. You need to diversify the people behind the camera." And while we're talking about beauty standards. Reality dating shows often reinforce unrealistic ideals for women of all backgrounds. We hear the term body positivity all the time these days. Clothing and lingerie brands that only catered to smaller bodies for years have started becoming more inclusive and use models of different shapes and sizes. And yet reality dating shows seem to be trapped in a never-ending cycle of early 2000s fat shaming. Most of the shows we've talked about feature conventionally thin people, despite that not really being reflective of the audience at all. That's where the medium of TV gets in the way. I think producers generally aren't, and, and network executives are not modern enough, have not kind of come, come to that as quickly as the rest of the population. Like, I think they're lagging behind the rest of the population in terms of body acceptance and body positivity. I suspect that, again, an older set of or, or at least a more conservative, traditional-minded set of network executives is afraid to push the envelope. But I suspect that in many cases, if they did push the envelope, they would find that viewers would go along just fine and would be perfectly happy to see all types of beauty and all types of shape and size represented. There's another glaring example that proves that dating reality shows haven't evolved with society. 
the lack of LGBTQ representation. In the past 20 years, people's acceptance of gay relationships and gay marriage has evolved a lot, as has their acceptance of gay characters on TV. When dating reality shows first popped up on the scene, the world was a different place. Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom was canceled after she came out, and that was in 1998. The Bachelor premiered just four years later. But in the time since, there have been a number of wildly popular scripted shows that feature queer characters. Will and Grace, Modern Family, and nowadays, most people are not shocked by a gay or queer character on television. And of course, gay marriage is legal. But you wouldn't know any of that from tuning into a lot of the reality dating shows that are on today. There are a few shows that feature non-hetero couples and singles. Logo did a Bachelor-style show that featured gay men called Finding Prince Charming. Their show Fire Island is centered around gay singles. MTV's reality dating show, Are You The One, also featured a non-hetero season. I have no idea if my perfect match is going to be a male or a female. I'm attracted to both genders. And there are a handful of other shows, but for the most part, that's it. I do think TV still tends to be a pretty conservative, in the small C sense, but conservative medium. I think you're still, with most TV networks, trying to go for the lowest common denominator, the biggest audience that you can. And so you don't want to brush up against, I, I hate to use the word offend because it sounds so, uh, you know, pejorative, but like you don't want to offend anyone's sensibilities. You don't want to turn off any portion of what you want to be a pretty broad audience. The, the Bachelor audience in particular actually is quite politically conservative. The the states where the show is most popular is a lot of Southern states, a lot of Trump states. And so I think a network executive doesn't want to push that too far and doesn't want to risk turning off any portion of the audience base. On the other hand, you know, I would expect that a network like HBO that has a, a much different audience base might be more inclined to push the envelope. I'm a little surprised that they haven't pushed it more. When we look at the format of reality dating shows, there has been some progress. As we've been talking about, there are a lot of different premises that deviate from the original Bachelor model. Netflix seems to be trying to create a whole genre of shows that are variations on the variation, like Too Hot to Handle, a show modeled after Love Island, except the only way to win is to not have sex. Talk about taking the fun out of reality TV. This is literally heaven on earth. Cheers to sexy people. Thanks, guys. I'm Lana. Plot twist. No there are conditions to your stay here. Bloody hell. No kissing or sex of any kind. <gasps> or Love is Blind, a show in which singles communicate through a wall and don't see each other until the second half of the show. I've met the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. I've never seen her before. Here, you will choose someone to marry. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Okay. Can't say see ya. Without ever seeing them. But even with these reimagined takes on dating reality, the point of the show always goes back to a traditional model of monogamy. Partly, I think these networks just need to come up with some new spin. Once one thing has been done, you want to, you still want to do a dating show because you know people are going to tune into dating shows, but you have to put a new twist on. So, okay, we'll put people in a weird hat. We'll put people in a weird room. We'll put people in a strange setting and try to play out the same experience. I think they're still, though, mostly about that same expectation. We know people want the same end goal, or we're telling people that, that the contestants in the show want the same end goal. We're putting a barrier in the way. 
the difference is what the barrier might be, but we're putting a barrier in the way and we're seeing, can love still succeed despite that barrier? And the end result of most of the shows, because of the way they're produced and the way they're edited, is to say yes, in most cases, yes. Even Love is Blind, where not all of the relationships made it to the end. If you saw the reunion show, a lot of the contestants got back together. And even the ones whose relationships failed said at the end, yes, I believe this process could work. And the people whose relationships succeeded, the ones who were still married by the end of, of the, the reunion special, said, it was, said, this is proof. This is proof of concept, no matter what weird obstacle the producers put in the way. And there were a lot of obstacles in that show beyond even the first one. Love can win in the end. We've talked a lot about shows that feature predominantly white cast and a few people of color. But there are shows that focus on the dating lives of people of color solely. Ready to Love is a show on OWN where Black 30 to 50-somethings try to find love from a pool of eligible singles. For the next 10 weeks, we're bringing 20 singles together to find authentic and lasting connections. <laughs> Making me blush. I like how you're holding me right now. But I vouch for Houston. We ain't playing any games. You fly, but you ain't flying in me today. I see you. <laughs> this is Ready to Love. We These singles are here because they want a serious relationship. I gotta figure this out for me, this is my life. We're about to find out just how serious they are. This is hands down my favorite reality dating show because so many aspects of this show are real. Most of the seasons, the singles don't stay in a house together. They meet up to date because they have lives and children and jobs. But even Ready to Love still relies on a lot of antiquated thinking. The show is heteronormative, and there's a lot of emphasis on extremely traditional gender roles. And there are reasons for that. Marriage rates for Black people are much lower than their white counterparts. And for decades, conservatives have implied that marriage and family is devalued amongst Black people. A show like Ready to Love might cling to a more traditional view of relationships to counteract some of those negative stereotypes. I think that these sort of double standards and increased scrutiny also come into play here. Because it is a predominantly Black cast, there may be more thought on the part of the producer or even the contestants themselves of, you know, what kind of show do I want to be on? How do I want to represent myself on TV, knowing that I will be more scrutinized? I also think just as a genre, you could say that The Bachelor, for example, or it just any reality TV dating show, they can be sort of regressive. There's very much been a template within The Bachelor of like one man, one woman. We know that does not represent everyone who watches that show either. In some ways, we're talking about just general entertainment industry pitfalls. But I do think that it goes back to sort of the different expectations and the double standards that Black people and Black women in particular encounter on reality shows. So much of what we watch is fraught with the complicated messages we get about race, gender, and sexuality. So even shows that seem to be positive on the surface can send negative messages, like Bravo's To Rome for Love, a show that followed five single heterosexual American Black women as they look for partners in Rome. Black women have a hard time finding love in America. We are seen as very outspoken. We're ghetto. We're rude. And it's not true. We are queens, we are beautiful, and we should be going where we're celebrated. Buongiorno! Rome is one of the most magical places in the world. Now this could seem like a good thing. 
We have been talking about the ways Black women are overlooked in the reality dating space. But even this show has a double meaning because it centers Black women. And it implies that these women somehow can't find love in the United States. There are a lot of implications just within the premise of the show. Um, you have Black women who have been unable or, you know, in their, in their words, they've been unable to find meaningful relationships stateside. And so they're going to another place and probably not going to end up with a Black man. That's something that's probably lost on white viewers of that show. And I think it also can send potentially negative messages to Black women who are watching that show. And even when we step away from race, dating reality shows are just really cringy. Remember that Love Island scene we heard with Yawande Biala a little earlier? The one where women line up to be chosen by men who've just laid eyes on them for the first time? The first time I watched Love Island, it was this season. And I was floored by that scene. It seemed so obviously sexist before we even got to the Yawande part. It seemed like the sort of thing you couldn't get away with on TV anymore. But Love Island still remains one of the most popular dating reality shows. I asked Joanna how these shows get away with being so bad and why we still like them. I think the people who go on those shows are probably willing to put themselves through things that they might not in ordinary life because they know there's that expectation that they will benefit from it in the end. And then people watch partly because it is cringy. I think we watch these shows partly aspirationally and partly ironically and partly with the sense that, oh my gosh, I would never do that or would I ever do that or that's not me up there or I might not be able to find my match, but at least I'm not putting myself through that. And I think there's a part of us that, that likes to see that as the other as we're stressing out about the anxiety of our own relationships and our own dating process. There's a part of us that wants to be out there and there's a part of us that thinks, well, at least I'm not there. When we think about how these shows reflect what we feel about dating and marriage, does it matter if we're watching aspirationally or ironically? I think we're probably doing both at the same time is, is the honest truth of it. I think there's a lot in our culture that still pushes people toward marriage. And there's a lot of biology that still pushes people toward monogamous relationships and marriage. I think all of television and particularly real, reality television, I think the reason it's popular is because it is this stage for us to play out all of our human emotions and all of our relationships. It's just, it's, it's a place where, it's a place where we can project all of our feelings and anxieties about what's going on in real life and watch other people perform it and evaluate it and judge it in a way that's detached from our own lives. And so I think for people who are entering the dating pool or in their 20s or at any age and thinking about marriage and thinking about the future, watching these people go through these scenarios getting a sense of what works and what doesn't work, what they like and what they don't like, what they think is good about these potential partners and what they want to reject about these potential partners. You bring a little piece of it back to your own life and your own expectations. And everybody's symbolic of something. And it's not just one demographic that watches this stuff. People of all backgrounds are tuning into reality dating shows. Relationships are a fundamental part of life, whether you're in a marriage or a committed monogamous relationship or whether you are playing the field or whether you don't want to be monogamous. No matter what kind of relationship you're in, it's still a foundational part of human life. And so I think wherever you are, there's a show that matches 
where you might be. But I think more importantly, there's a piece of any show that connects either to something that happened to you in the past or that is happening to you right now. You can think about your own marriage in the context of The Bachelor and the expectations that the part that the participants on The Bachelor have for each other and for marriage and, and evaluate how does my own marriage match up positively or negatively. You can match your own dating experience to the experience that people are having on those shows. And I think because relationships carry on through life, you, you might be married and then you might not be married someday or vice versa. There's always an expectation that you might find yourself in this position in the future or that you might apply some lesson that you have learned or taken from the show to your own life. Watching reality TV is fun, even when we know it's bad. It's like watching a fight. We know we shouldn't just stand there and watch. We should walk away or do something to break it up. But we can't turn away. I do wonder, though, if all of these negative portrayals on reality dating shows are harmful because they're supposed to be real. I think on one hand, yes, and that's why there are concerns about how Black women and people of color are portrayed on these shows. At the same time, I also think that reality show genre is to a point where we sort of know what to expect from it. We know that there's a certain level of uh, drama and, you know, there might be conflict and that is for many people a, a large reason of why these shows appeal to them and so i sort of think that the goal should be more of a balance between the drama and the real life and that those real life portrayals should be as authentic as possible while also being entertaining because that's the point i have just spent around 30 minutes telling you all about the ways reality dating shows fall short of what we say we want and who we say we are. And yet, I'm probably gonna binge the latest season of Ready to Love this weekend. Because in the end, even though I'm an unmarried single with unclear feelings towards marriage, I like this stuff, it's entertaining. I asked Bethany and Joanna how we can reconcile all the terrible things we know about reality dating shows with our desire to keep watching them. That's sort of a calculation a lot of us have to make when watching TV in general. You know, what do you get out of watching the show? Um, and there's really, there shouldn't be much judgment around that, right? Like if you just need to watch two hours of just completely dramatic reality TV when you get home from work, like that's valid. If you're watching because you are someone who has experienced a lot of relationship pitfalls or you're going through something like that's that's valid too. It's great to be able to watch these shows on your own terms and there's just a little something for everybody in these shows because at the end of the day because they're produced and because they're edited this way and because the people who go on these shows are willing to put their hearts on their sleeves or act dramatically for the cameras or whatever it is. It's all playing out in this really, really entertaining way. And there's just something to latch onto with every one of these crazy contestants. So maybe marriage rates are declining and monogamy is less popular. But at least for 30 minutes on any given network at any given time, marriage and monogamy are still alive and well. And that's it for us today. 
I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. But I work with an extremely hardworking team to make the show possible. The show's producer is Alicia Key. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Our director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Thanks to Kira Long for giving us the idea for the episode this week. And big thanks to Bethany Butler 